The On The Way podcast continues charting its way across the Northern Hemisphere today. Uh, it is Dom Fay here taking the podcast to the other side of the globe for conversations with some of the most insightful thinkers and writers in the world. And uh, I am so thrilled about this conversation coming up. Uh, Dr. James Hollis is a Jungian analyst and author of a number of books giving a profound insight into the human condition, such as Why Good People Do Bad Things, uh, The Eden Project in Search of the Magical Other, and Hauntings, Dispelling the Ghosts Who Run Our Lives. Uh, I am here in a hotel room in uh, Washington, but joining me via Zoom from nearby is uh, James Hollis. James, thank you so much for, for making time for this conversation. You're most welcome, Dom. Pleased to be with you. Uh, now, look, your, your work has been so instrumental um, to me for a number of years now. I think I was saying to a friend recently, I think I've recommended the Eden Project to people more than any other book I've ever come across, probably. Um, and, and I am hoping today to have a conversation about projection, individuation, and how to follow the call uh, of the soul into an authentic life, no matter how risky and brave uh, that, that may be. Um, but, but to begin with, James, I'm, I'm curious, for those who maybe aren't too well acquainted with the the varieties of and histories of psychoanalysis, maybe they've had a couple of therapy sessions themselves in the past or heard about mindfulness and CBT at various stages, but, but don't know too much about um, the varying approaches. Can you give a, a little bit of in, an insight into um, Carl Jung's approach, uh, the uniqueness of Carl Jung's approach and, and why it's resonated so much with you? Well, first of all, um, we are behaviors, we are cognitive systems, we are bodies that have physiological process, of course, but we're something more than that. We are creatures for whom meaning is essential in our lives, and we suffer greatly when we're disconnected from meaning and from the path we're meant to be taking by our own nature. So it's incumbent upon us from time to time to stop and pay attention and to say, how well are things going? Because, you know, early on in childhood, we learn that uh, the world's big and I'm not, and the world's powerful and I'm not. So we learn various ways of coping, you know, to get along, you go along. And of course, in those adaptations, many of which are necessary and sometimes useful, uh, we also get separated from that source within. And so from a psychoanalytic perspective, we pay attention to the symptoms that necessarily arise. In other words, if I'm doing the right things for myself, why is it that I suffer depression? Why is it I'm drinking too much? Why is it I have this problem or that problem? Why does it keep showing up in my relationships? Usually people are driven to this kind of introspection and this self-examination, frankly, not just out of curiosity, though that's a good motive, it's because something has is, is gone wrong, gone wrong badly. I had a client once uh, in Houston who was a member of a 12-step group, and he said the motto of their group was, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. And I thought that applies to all of us <laughs> to some degree. We learn modes of adaptation, modes of coping, and uh, those adaptations, again, sometimes obligatory, it seems, uh, also separate ourselves from ourselves. And, you know, then, then there's the devil to pay because we, we uh, have to pay for the consequences of getting, you know, uh, separated. And um, we become creatures divided against ourselves. So what we try to do in psychoanalysis is, is evoke a conversation with the unconscious. And of course, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So we don't know what it's doing or saying, but it keeps spilling into the world through us. 
So many times people have asked me, well, where do I begin? And I'd say, well, start with examining your patterns in your life. Uh, the patterns that particularly turn out the way that you didn't want them to turn out, the, the patterns that are self-destructive or hurtful to you or others. And realize we don't do crazy things. We do logical things based upon the intrapsychic contents that have been activated. In other words, our behavior is a logical response to whatever's triggered inside of us. And we, we may be quite unaware of what that is and unable to resist serving it, but there it is. And, and you start with those patterns or we pay attention to our symptoms. You know, if, if I'm doing all the right things, why do I feel this depression or this disconnect from purpose in my life? Um, or what do my dreams tell me? You know, in other words, the more we start paying attention to what's going on inside, the better we're able to fix our lives outside of us. This is not about navel gazing. It's not about self-absorption. It's not about uh, narcissism in any way. And it's in fact challenging and frequently humbling work because it means here are other things that we may have to deal with uh, that we weren't planning to deal with, but still are part of our relationships, what we're passing on to our children. And of course, where we get into our, our own own ways from time to time. There's a, there's been a, I guess a, a clinical approach in recent decades, which has tended to view things such as depression and anxiety as separate to our lived experience, sort of these things that just visit us, they can be medicated away and off we go. But the, the depth psychology approach, the Jung approach is, is much more um, integrated, I suppose is maybe the word than that. Is, is that. is that a fair thing to say? Yes, I think so. Uh, in other words, rather than suppress a symptom, which is understandable from an ego standpoint, I don't want to be depressed or I don't want to be anxious. Give me a pill to fix that. Well, the pill doesn't fix that. It numbs that feeling. We would rather ask the question, why has this come to you? What is it asking of you? What is it you need to address in your life whereby this is not how your own psyche is responding and perhaps rebelling against your best intentions? So in other words, if, if I just medicate away my symptoms and their intensity, however tempting that might be, I'm still dealing, not dealing with the uh, causal factors that led me to that place. And they're mm -hmm. simply going to migrate to some other area of our lives. So we, it, it requires courage to look at oneself because it tells the ego, which is, you know, that conscious part of ourselves that thinks it's in charge and thinks it knows what it's doing and is making proper choices, tells the ego, you know, Buster, you better pay attention here. There are other factors going on in your life. And the less you pay attention to it, the more you're driving blindly. Or are, are you aware that maybe a decision you made yesterday came from the six-year-old that you carry inside of you? You wouldn't allow a child to drive your automobile, but maybe a child and its perspectives and its conclusions about self and other and its reflexive responses to people is in fact making those decisions, is in fact creating those patterns, is in fact governing your life. Now, how does that feel? And of course, if we put it that way, then you realize, well, that's not really uh, acceptable, is it? I, I'm, I'm, I'm living a very provisional and tentative life rather than an authentic one. And central to this, I think, is the idea of individuation, um, which I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about because it's a bit of a jump, I think, for some people to, to grasp the belief that 
that life is actually asking something of them, that life is calling to them in some profound way. I think um, a lot of people experience their lives as, as quite a, a random series of, of just happenings that they're not really in control of. But individuation presents us with an entirely different foundational narrative of, of what it is to, to exist, to be human. Um, what, what, what is the, the idea of individuation? Well, it's not about individualism as we typically think of it. And, and it's not, again, about self-absorption. It's, it's about serving that which wishes to enter the world through us. We don't think in terms of that. We, we think in terms of what do I want from a conscious standpoint, or we think about what do my parents want for me as a child? What do the school teacher want for me? What does the employer want for me? What does my partner want for me, et cetera, et cetera. And those are legitimate questions, of course. But, but it doesn't stop there. You have to ask the question, what is it that is seeking expression through me into this world? In other words, it's your personhood, if I can create that word for a moment, that, that you're most brought, most called to bring to your life. It's, it's really a calling in life. And it's nothing grandiose necessarily. It doesn't mean you have to invent a cure for cancer or, or write a symphony or something. It's, it's becoming more profoundly who you are because that's the person you will share with others. That's the person that you will model for your children. That's the person that is your gift to the collective. When we undertake our own journey towards our, our own authentic life, whatever form that may take, it's a very humbling experience, sometimes a frightening one. But ultimately, it's rewarding because we have a, de a greater sense of purpose in our lives. You know, we, we just passed through a New Year's here in the United States, as we did in Australia, of course. And, and one of the things I said to people is I wish them well for the year. I wish them also a purposeful life. In other words, what purposes are you serving apart from paying your bills and maybe taking care of children and so forth, all of which are useful tasks? Why are you here in service to what? What is wishing expression through you? And that's a humbling question because it may or may not be in accord with the world in which I find myself, may or may not be understood by others. Sometimes one feels very lonely and isolated in that position. But then if you're not living your journey, whose life are you living, right? Yeah, if yeah. at the end of the day... <laughs> You, you look back and you say, well, I, I coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, I, I should have done this with my life and so forth. And, you know, many times people will come into therapy because they're in a marital crisis, let's say, or they experience a depression or they've had some outer blow like being laid off from their work or they've had a divorce or something of that nature. And, and then you realize, all right, <laughs> this is one of those nodules, one of those junctures in my life where important choices are coming up for me. What are the factors that are going to be present in making those choices? And if I don't know some of the players that are at work in the context of my decision-making process, then I'm driving blindly once again to be mindful of some of those other factors intrapsychically, which are really um, you know, in charge, such as maybe the need to fit in, fear of being alone. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that fear. It's just do you want a fear like that being the governor of your life journey? Is fear a good way to live your life? You can't afford or, or avoid, I should say, from time to time having fearful things to counter, but do you want to live a fearful life? Is that what you really want to do? 
somewhere you want to live a life in which you don't serve the compliance, where you, you, you don't just fit in, but you stand for something that is important and meaningful to you. You know, meaning is the most elusive of all of these qualities that we need to address, but maybe it's the most important. If what you're doing is meaningful, it so transcends all of the other experiences of your life. And you can't buy that and you can't just acquire it by more effort. What you have to do at some point is to submit yourself once again to what is wanting expression in the world through you. Mm. Who's the person you're going to share with other people? That's the question. And, and what is that person's values and where do they come from in your life? That's why I've asked people many times to examine their choices and, and to address the question, where did that come from inside of me? What is that in service to inside of me? And maybe it's the old frightened part. Maybe it's the part that needs to fit in. Maybe it's the part that's afraid of criticism. Maybe it's the part that's afraid of being out there by itself. Those are understandable fears. Every child has them. Every adult has them. But once again, once you've made it conscious, are you really satisfied with your life if you turn your life over to those earlier developmental issues? I don't think so. And again, the, the best person you can become is the person then you share with your partner or your children or your society. So mm -hmm. again, this is not about isolation. It's not about um, you know, self-absorption. It's about how can I be the best possible me as defined by my own nature rather than maybe the dictates of a social structure into which I've been placed by fate. Because if you examine that, if you were born a thousand years ago, let's say in a rice paddy in Thailand, your whole sense of self and your sense of world would be quite different. And, and yet you'd still be here at some level to serve the purposes of your own incarnation, whether it comes from nature or divinity, whichever metaphor you prefer. So mm -hmm. the issue of growing into yourself, you know, Jung said once in a very homey metaphor, we all walk in shoes too small for us. And, and I think what he meant was we're stuck within our adaptations and, and understandably so, but is, is that really sufficient for your life once you've made it conscious? Isn't it time at some juncture in your journey to stop and pay attention and take that on? Are you able and willing to take your life on and be accountable for it? Sounds so simple. It's in fact not. And it's a lifetime responsibility that that summons is never gone. Yeah, I, and I love that about, about your writing is this idea that if you're 15 years old or if you're 80 years old or if you're wherever you are on the spectrum life is asking something of you today it's it's inviting you into the fullness of the expression of yourself in in some profound way and yet a lot of this does as you, you mentioned there go back to early narratives we picked up maybe in our infancy um in our development things that sort of got their hooks into us and and have formed and shaped us more than we realize i know um you've written uh, quite extensively about the idea that uh, the greatest burden um, each of us carry is the unlived life of our parents in some capacity. Um, and, and one of my favorite uh, things I think you've ever written, James, I love this so much, is this idea that each human carries one of two core wounds, either the wound of too much or the wound of too little. 
um, uh, you know, that, that some way in, in, in one form or another growing up, we interpreted our lives in one of those two ways. We received too much, we received too little. How do you see these, these early narratives we're given about too much or too little and the unlived life of the parent? How do you see these, these shape and influence people as they, they step into adulthood and, and go on that journey? Well, we have to recall that as children, we're constantly reading the world to try to make sense of it. It's like to say, well, who are you and who am I? And, and what's the nature of the traffic between us? And how am I to conduct myself? And am I myself as I am acceptable? Am I worthy of being valued, maybe loved by you or not? And if not, why? How do I need to twist and turn myself into something acceptable to you? Do I need to stay on the periphery of my own life and not expect anything from it? You know, these are, these are profound questions and profound uh, arbitrary conclusions that a child reaches. And again, from the perspective of the child, based upon the dynamics of that particular family of origin or that cultural context into which he or she is born. And you change that context and, and maybe your responses to those essential questions would be quite different. But the point is because they're there in our formative sense of self and other, and, and again, the reflexive traffic between us, it often sets in a core life pattern. So we could see later, decades later, a person feeling a very little sense of entitlement to their own life, to their own feelings, to their own journey. It's all about trying to find someone whom they need to associate with, who will take care of that for them. And they become unwittingly a dependent person or, or they, they, they find that they're spending all of their time trying to adjust or fit in to other people's expectations, or they're terrified of, of stepping into their personal authority. I, I've often said to people, the biggest task of the first half of life is to show up, to step into the world, to leave your parents, step into the world and say, you know, I, I can... I can show up for work on time. I can do that job. Trust me in this relationship. I'll meet you halfway. You know, those are important ego building um, summonses to each of us. And if a truck runs over us on our 35th birthday, or our 40th or 45th or whatever, we might say, well, the person lived the life that their society pretty much dictated to them. They either served it or ran from it, but they were not indifferent to it. Um, and, and then you have to ask the question, but then why am I here beside that? Maybe I've reproduced my species. Maybe I've, I've contributed to the world in one way or the other, but why am I here now? And that's the summons to personal authority that was there in childhood. It was called instinct. Your instinct was that within your own nature that told you what was right for you. But, but we get disconnected from it again through the necessity of adaptation. That's why people, when they come in in the second half of life, it's usually in the venue of a troubled marriage or, the, or, the, or a depression or you know, some vocational confusion or whatever the outer arena. The real question is, but who are you apart from your history? And again, what is it that is asking expression through you? And to start taking that seriously may require changes, yes. Maybe not easy changes. But if you ignore them, then you can expect to stay stuck. As that saying was, I, you know, this isn't working for me, but I do it very well. That, that describes all of us to some degree. We get hooked in to those adaptive patterns 
and the adaptation that maybe once served a purpose today is a kind of prison because it keeps you locked into the essential powerlessness of childhood and the limited frame of reference that each child suffers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this actually ties beautifully into um, your interpretation of the word depression, the idea of, of depression being to depress, to press down, that it's a response to life's energy in some way being pushed down or repressed or, or denied in, in some fundamental way. And, um, and I think one of the, the key insights of the Jungian tradition that comes through your writing so much, James, is that that the soul won't will not be mocked. Life isn't going to let us get away with that. It's it's if we try to do that, if we try to push down that which is really trying to come out through us into the world, it's not something we're just going to be able to 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 do without uh, without any repercussions. No, that's true. And and you know, there's a deep sorrow in the soul of most people for that reason, because something inside of them knows. I'm not living my life. I'm living my adaptations to my life. There's a big difference there. There's a deep longing within each of us that might get translated into looking for, you know, a better drug, more sex, more more money, more power, what, whatever form it takes out there. When the real issue intrapsychically is, is once again, what is it that your own soul, and that's what the word psyche means from the Greek, what is your soul asking of you? That's a different question. And the child asks that question, although not in that language, of course, but learn quickly, but I'm too powerless to execute that in the world. I have to try to fit in as best I can. One of the things I recall as a child, how grateful I was to early school teachers who I, I realized were not only teaching me to read and write, but were opening to me a, a larger world out there. This is no criticism of my parents who were kind and thoughtful in their, their way, but I something inside knew there was more to life than what we were experiencing. And they were a channel for me and I'm, I remain grateful to them. It started a journey in here that led to journeys in the actual world later um, that are fortunately not over, you know, still living those journeys and, and with a great deal of enthusiasm and, and excitement about it. It's like, you know, for me, learning has been synonymous with life and with growth. And I don't mean just academic learning. I mean, learning about the simple things and asking simple questions, you know, about why is this this way instead of that way? And what does this mean? And why has this come to me in this way at this moment? That that makes life a, a large and, and very satisfying uh, puzzle. The puzzle is something we work on all of our life. And there's a, a deep listening, I suppose, that's constantly required, a deep paying attention that um, is the difference between sort of being run on autopilot or, or actually engaging in the process of, of what's emerging. And one of my favorite um, distinctions you make, James, is is the difference between depression and anxiety as almost the two. We have to make a choice every day to some extent. Will we take anxiety or will we take depression? Can you just explain what you mean by by that, by the, the choice we have to make each day between depression and anxiety? Sure. And before that, let me just mention that the word therapy comes from a Greek verb, therapoiain, that means to listen to or to attend. Mm. So it's an act of listening to what? Psyche, the soul. It's like paying attention to your own soul. 
And yes, in the governance of our lives on a daily basis, an hourly basis to some degree, we frequently have to choose between anxiety and depression because the human ego obviously is insecure, wants clarity, wants control. And the more it realizes it's not really in charge of the universe, uh, as up to, you know, some people have said that the two-year-old, the two-year-old, the terrible twos is the child's last narcissistic battle that says basically, but I want to be the emperor of the world. I want everybody to dote upon me. I want them to meet my needs right now. And slowly the world begins to say, no, you're going to have to find your own way through and you're going to have to do some things you don't want to do. And this is just the beginning. Now, uh, again, when I enter into a developmental and growth process, I'm entering new territory and that will cause anxiety. That anxiety is just natural. It's life anxiety. It's, it's, it's not in itself neurotic. It's just the emotion that floods us when, when we realize we're not in charge of the new terrain which we're exploring. But then if I don't move forward, if I don't you know, step into the larger possibilities that my life asks of me, then I'm going to experience depression. And I say of the two, choose anxiety because it's developmental. I don't mean to literalize this. If you're afraid of heights, you don't have to take up skydiving. But you have to say, now, what does that translate to psychologically? Maybe I'm too rigid. Well, I'm too much grounded here. And I'm afraid to sort of let something fly within my own psyche and see where that takes me. So there are many ways of looking at these basic anxieties that we get. What are they about, really? Most of the anxieties that we experience are not going to happen. If I move in a certain direction, people are not going to love me. Or if I move in a certain direction, I'll be out there alone. I'll be ridiculed, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that could happen. Chances are it won't. But if it were to happen, there is a person on the scene that can help me with that. And that is me, right? The adult can handle that in a way the child could not. For the child, that's an overwhelming experience. I need the approval and the acceptance of others. Otherwise, it's just too scary. It's Life's too shaky. So I, I, again, have that deeply embedded in there. What happens if someone doesn't like what I'm doing? Well, right, I'm not talking about criminal behavior or license to just do whatever you want. One always has to be mindful of the consequences of our choices upon others. That's why you stop at stop signs. That's why you pay attention to traffic laws. We, we need to have these rules of engagement with each other to conduct a functional and respectful society. On the other hand, there's a point where you have to say to yourself, but this is my journey. My path is different from that of my parents or of my ancestors. And it's not that I'm repudiating anybody. I, I'm simply, in a humbling way, serving, again, what is wishing expression in the world through me. That's, that's what I'm here for. That's the gift. And I, again, it doesn't have to be grandiose. It can simply be a more thoughtful parent. It can be a more compassionate partner. It could be a, a person who is more conscious and simply not being caught all the time in the child's stories that we all carry in our head that govern most of our daily choices. Hmm. 
Do you know, on, on one of the most recent episodes of the podcast, I spoke to um, the philosopher Pete Rollins, uh, and we, I, I made the comment to him that I was thinking recently about the, the best couples I know and how almost all of them, in some way, the beginning of their relationship involved some degree of others around them not understanding why those two people would get together. There was a sense of, I don't know if it was judgment or shame or, or a bit of drama around it, but something in the both of them felt, and we might get to what that something is later on, but but felt compelled to respond to this invitation to each other regardless of what those around them might say or think or or what the response might be. And I suppose that's, to, to an extent, the anxiety you're, you're talking about really is this, I think your quote that I love is, is anxiety is the price of the ticket to life. Intrapsychic depression is the byproduct of the refusal to climb aboard, which is this sense that, that if you're really responding to where life's calling you, there is going to be there's going to be stakes at play. You, you could you could lose something in the process, but if you do, it's not going to be anywhere near as high a cost as what you'll lose if you don't respond. That's right. That's right. Yes. Uh, in my early life, I was an academic and I loved the teaching world and I still do. I do a lot of teaching and I'm in my mid eighties now. And, um, you know, I had a tenured position at a university, a job that, uh, you know, people would virtually kill for. And, I walked away from it, and a lot of my friends thought I was crazy, you know, that I was leaving that security in a good position that, you know, people had to work hard to attain. And and I found myself realizing that the conversation that went on in the intimacy of therapy was somehow more real, more compelling, taking life deeper than the conversation that occurred in the classroom, as important as that conversation might be. And, and that, that I wanted to spend more of my life in that kind of conversation with people around the meaning of their journey. You know, Jung said about working with people's dreams, he said, I would usually tell people, I have no idea what your dream means, but together we're going to work with this until these images begin to get loosened and, and float to the surface and we can begin then to make them conscious. And out of that, we may form some impression of what our own souls are trying to say to us. Well, mm. that's that's a risky conversation at some level. On the other hand, because it takes you to new places you don't know about. But what if you don't have that conversation? Then your life stays, you know, within the conventional, within the ad- adaptive, and and w- w- within the the acceptable. Uh, Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian, said once: um, merchant ships hug the shoreline. Men of war ships get their orders opened out on the high seas. And that's a fit metaphor for saying at some point, life will come to you and say to you, you know, now you're asked to grow up. And what does that mean here? Really become responsible for your choices. Really be responsible for their consequences. Take that on. Maybe you're living in a way that you think is responsible. You pay your bills. You're dutiful as a parent, et cetera. Um, and, and yet in another way, it's all about adaptation. It's all about fitting in. It's about following the script that your, your context, your life has given you. But what if your, your soul says, but something else is calling you here? I mean, Kierkegaard mm-hmm. talked about that in his famous book, Fear and Trembling, where he, he talked about the scandalous story of Abraham, who's called to slay his own child. 
And he sees it as a metaphor of saying, what if you were asked by the highest possible authority, your own soul, and in that case, God, to slay your own child? It's a repugnant idea. And yet the challenge, the willingness to, to submit to that question, he said, is, is what made Abraham a pioneer or knight of the faith, to use uh, Kierkegaard's language in the 19th century, in which he's saying, essentially, in th those moments, Abraham, in a sense, stood up and opened himself to the mystery of the universe and said, I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice things that are near and dear to me because of you know this higher calling so to speak now talk is cheap that's very difficult when people go through the dark night of the soul for example they experience a, a significant depression it's like going down to the bottom of a well you don't know that there's a bottom you don't know where it is but there's always a bottom and, and at the bottom of the well is a task of some kind that you face, the addressing of which will lift the depression. Now, there are times when some of the depressions are biologically driven, and I want to acknowledge that and to say that's part of the differentiation that one has to go through. But most of the time when we talk about depression, we're talking about how the psyche has autonomously withdrawn its approval and support from the places where the ego is wanting to make its investments. And then we have to ask the question, but why would it do that? What is it in service to? And what does the psyche want of me? And again, we don't ask those questions usually until we've tried all of the alternatives. Right? Uh, a friend of mine from uh, uh, Toronto said once, we all entered Zurich where we did our training uh, to become analysts uh, many years ago. Uh, he said, we all entered on our knees. And he didn't mean that in a... Uh, respectful pilgrim sense of being on one's knees. It was like people had been knocked to the ground by life and, and didn't know what else to do with themselves. And rather than say, here's how you fix your depression, basically what we were told was, sit with it, honor it until its meaning comes to you, mm -hmm. until it becomes clear what life is really asking of you. And then you have you know, an enormous summons an enormous choice to make and it sometimes leads to the crucifixion of the ego to saying but i want a comfortable life or i want one where people you know understand and approve and those are not federal crimes those are understandable human motives but maybe they also keep you from stepping into the largeness of your own journey and when you do that there's something deep within that is violated and something that is violated in the purposes of nature itself. And it may pass, you know, unseen by others, but something inside of you always knows. Yeah. And there's something in that about this sense that I've always loved the Rumi line uh, where he says, destroy your reputation. This idea that, that the, the real soulful path forward will in some way probably demand that we make a decision that mightn't seem in the best interests of our reputation or our mortgage or in some way the, the safe and secure path that part of us wants to have. And, and so there's a lot of people probably thinking, well, yeah, I, I do feel called to try that other line of work, but I've got this mortgage to pay back. Or I do feel called to 
you know, begin or enter a relationship with this person, but what would people say if I did? And all these sorts of, of fears kind of hold us back in a sense. So what do we do when, when the voice of fear is so loud and, and, and so dominant that it's standing in the way of us taking that, that brave step forward? Well, that happens for many people, many. Um, and by the way, you think about mortgage for a moment. If you think in the French, mort is the word for death and gage is glove. So it's almost like, you know, anxiety has a death glove around your throat here. <laughs> you can't live your life. you got to pay this mortgage here. Yeah, yeah. I would say live your life and find a way to pay the mortgage. You know, people have often said to me, should I do this or that? And my response to them is yes. <laughs> figure out a way to do both i was i was running back and forth to zurich and maintaining a family life and, and teaching life here in america and borrowed money to to do that it wasn't free by any means and uh you know i i couldn't couldn't explain to people particularly why i was doing it it was simply that this is taking the the, the journey more deeply than i ever have before and something in me knows that I have to do this. And if I don't, something vital inside is going to die. I might continue to be a, a decent college teacher. I might be a decent father. I might be a de decent citizen. But something inside is dead. Yeah. And something inside, you know, is, 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 is not being able to come to life. And again, that's a deep violation of something. I love Rob Bell's work on that, where he says everything is risk. Sure, if you if you do this thing, you might risk running out of money, but if you don't do it, you might risk dying inside. So which risk are you willing to, to live with in a sense? But I suppose that, that raises another question, James, as well, which is a question of discernment. Um, because sometimes the things that can feel as though they're calling us forward, it can be hard to tell, is this actually that that you know that summons of the soul calling me into larger life or is this in fact just the 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 complexes that have run my life the whole way through acting out in a new way so you know i think about somebody who perhaps has this deep desire or longing for this this person who's entered their life and is struggling with the decision inside of them is this relationship that I'm being called into, is this actually the summons of the soul? Or is this another example of my desire to avoid the summons of the soul? How do we, do we discern, I suppose, the longings, desires and, and invitations we receive? Which ones are, are life calling us forward and which ones are an attempt to, to just flee life again? Well, that's a profound question and, and a troubling one. And it's the one that as a therapist I confront every day. Uh, and, and you used a very fine word there, it's discernment. That means sorting and sifting over time. Where is this coming from inside of your soul? It could be an impulsive gesture. It could be a complex that has a lot of energy attached to it, and that'll take you off in this direction. And the discernment needs to be carefully undertaken over time. And the ego doesn't want to hear that. It wants a resol wants clarity. It wants a resolution right now. I, I want my marching orders so that I know which direction to move. And many times you have to say to people, you, you have to sit with this. Sit with it. Sort and sift. Sort and sift. Sort and sift until clarity reaches you. And if it's a complex only, it will spin its energy out, and then you'll come back to a different place psychologically. When people ask, 
the basic question, why was I so upset yesterday? Or what, what was I thinking when I got into this situation? That's, those are healthy questions. Because the answer is we don't know. And, and, you know, some complex, which is after all a cluster of our own history, and we all have history within us, some cluster of that history was triggered, came up, took over the ego and made the decision for us. And it turns out to have been an inappropriate decision. Um, and we didn't know it at the time. We entered into it in good faith. I mean, most of life is on automatic pilot. Most of life is spent serving the complexes. It's quite possible that one could live an entire life, you know, and never really be conscious. One could simply be serving the conditioning forces within. But then to ask the question, you know, what does the body say about this? What are my deeper feelings say about this? If I'm doing all the right things, why do I feel no sense of reward or purpose or joy in what I'm doing? Uh, or paying attention to my dreams. I don't make up my dreams from a conscious standpoint, but they're clearly mine. And they have something else to say. In other words, one needs to know something inside of me knows what's right for me more than I, the conscious individual speaking at this moment, can possibly know. And what I need to do is dialogue with that. You don't just turn your life over to that. You're still responsible for paying your bills, taking care of the children and tending to the tasks that daily life brings. But you also have to listen to that voice within the stifling of which in some way destroys, you know, your, your deeper purposes in life. So mm -hmm. the discernment process is sitting with something in a very thoughtful way, a conscious way over time. To talk about psychopathology, pathos is the Greek word for suffering, logos is expression. So psychopathology means the expression of the suffering of the soul. If you look at it in those terms, then you think, well, why would I take a pill for that? I really need to address why my soul is suffering. And to the degree that it's possible to change the circumstances of my life, in a way which will open the soul to a, a greater sense of fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And again, this is not about being happy. Happiness is a byproduct of being in right relationship to one's soul at any given point in one's life. If I'm doing what's right for me, it makes me happy. I would never have thought as a young person, you know, as a young person, I thought of becoming a professional sports figure, let's say, as many children do. Well, I didn't have the body for that in the long run. Um, so you could say, well, that was one of the many disappointments of life that says, well, your, your path is a different one than that, all right? So, all right, then, then the question is, all right, but, but what then am I to do with my journey? And, and that, uh, that ultimately has to come from within. And, and again, still serving the summons of the outer world. You pay your bills be a responsible partner, et cetera, et cetera. And that's an ongoing challenge that never, never quite changes. You know, and, and as I said, in being in my mid eighties, Eric Erickson said once the task at this point is the tension within between integrity and despair. By despair, one can say, well, death is imminent. My body is falling apart. I've lost many people in my life whom I love and I miss terribly including family members, and I can despair easily enough. But on the other hand, integrity means is integration, you know, the integrated self. I, I, 
I, I, I find this the most interesting part of my journey. I find the, the core curiosity is deeper and deeper and deeper. And I find so many questions and so many areas of inquiry that open now that, that life is very exciting, even in the midst of physical decline and chronic pain and so forth. So that's a paradox that the young person couldn't have imagined. As a young person, one would think, well, I'll, I'll be happy if I find a person to share my life with, I'll, I'll have a wonderful job, and my children will adore me, and, and I'll be semi-wealthy or something like that. I can go play golf or do something like that with my life. Well, fine, go do it if you want. But then some other point in your life, you're going to have to come back and say, but is this why I'm here? Mm. And again, that doesn't have to be something grand. It's something that has to be very, very thoughtful and something that comes from a deeper place within. And it's not about fitting in. You know, that's what children do. They try to fit in, understandably. And it's not about just a rebellion against something. It's, it's about saying, and here's where that discernment is, what, what is this path in service to inside of me? And what is that path in service to inside of me? Mm. And you may not know the answer to that question when you start, but if you keep addressing it in time, it will begin to reveal itself. And, and that's when you've gained some ownership of your life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there really isn't any escape from this. I know Sue, who I, uh, one of the, the other hosts of this podcast often says life will always out. And I've always thought that's a, a beautiful uh, idea that if you, a bit haunting in a sense, but also liberating that, that if you do try to put it off year after year after year, it doesn't go anywhere. It's going to come back in some other form somewhere along the line. And, um, and one of the ways we do try to put it off, and this is where I did uh, initially come into your work, was, was with the book The Eden Project, this idea that the search for the magical other uh, who will totally complete me and redeem my journey, that, that that has become central to our life. It's almost the the core spiritual quest of our culture that I, I will reach salvation and the return to the, the perfect union through finding the intimate partner out there in the world. This is one of the, the main ways in our culture people do put the thing off, the summons of their own soul. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, speaking of this this idea of the Eden Project, this this desire to return home through another, how did this um, this romantic notion become so central to us and, and the main, uh, I suppose, format in which people avoid the summons of their own soul? Well, romantic ideas have always been part of the human condition, but romance as a cultural value is relatively new. You know, marriage was about the transmission of parents, of, of, excuse me, the transmission of religious and cultural values. It was about self-preservation. It was about having children to uh, help with the work and, and, and so forth. Uh, the, the idea that there's someone out there who is going to fulfill my life, you know, Robert Johnson, who said, who was an analyst also said, um, you know, romantic thought or romance has replaced traditional religion for most people. If I'm in love, if I'm in a you know great relationship, then my life is magical. It makes it works. And and you know the search for that goes very deep within us because underneath 
you know, <laughs> we're born with a traumatic separation from home, metaphorically, or thrown into this world, tiny, dependent, and vulnerable. And we say to this child, all right, now figure it out for yourself and survive somehow. Well, it's a difficult journey. And you can imagine why a person would be wanting to go back home. That's why I called it the Eden Project. It's, it's I, I want to return to that place where my needs are met. If I can find the right person, they're going to meet my needs. Well, what does that mean? You see, that's an infantilizing idea. It's understandable. We don't judge it, but we recognize it's infantilizing. And a true relationship involves two responsible parties. You know, the, the relationship can never be more evolved than the psychology of each of the individuals. And, and so underneath is often a very, very deep and unconscious uh, motive. If I find the right person, they're going to take care of me. They're mm. going to meet my needs. They're going to be the good parent. And a couple at the altar is not likely to say, well, I'm counting on you to be my parent. They wouldn't think in those terms consciously, but it's there. And they they ultimately, and, and we know often romance has a certain shelf life, um, that after a certain period, the glow disappears and the projection has, has been exhausted by the reality of the other person. If I can say to myself, the other in the end is only another human being lost and broken as I am then I realize we can still be very caring toward each other. We can be enriching in each other's lives. We can share the journey. And most of all, we can grow from each other. And I try to make the point in the Eden Project, the, the largest thing we can get from the other is their otherness, paradoxically. It's not that we're going to be fitting into each other so much as, as I take in the otherness of the other, I grow and I develop and that means it's a vehicle for individuation. In other words, we can't individuate totally in isolation because we get caught in the loop of our own thought. Complexes talking to complexes. Another person engaging, as we're doing today, pulls me out of myself, and, and together we, we form a larger third between the two of us. Mm. And we're enlarged by that, you see. And so the purpose of relationship is either going to be regressive in character, you know, I'm counting on you to make my life work for me, or developmental is I, you will cause me to grow up. You will cause me to grow and develop in areas I'd prefer not to. You'll cause me to address my own needs. And we can be caring and loving in the time of doing that. But I can't dump that on you and call that loving you. That's just a burden to you. And the same is true with parents and children. You know, when parents think their children owe them something, what they're really saying is, I'm not addressing my life in the way I should. And I need to, to be responsible for my well-being. And my child passes through me en route to their own journey. I've been a simple vehicle for the renewal of the life journey. And their journey is a different one and bless them on their journey. If they want an opinion, all they have to do is ask me, I'm full of opinions, but they're not here to please me. You see, now, not many parents can say that. It sounds very simple and it sounds even perhaps obvious, but most parents don't feel that way. They're really expecting their children to grow up and surprise become something very much like me, you know, endorsing my values, 
<laughs> seeing the world as I see it, and of course, being there when I need them to be there. And and when they're not, I can feel frustrated at that and, and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, parents play a huge role in whether a child feels permission to live their journey or not, or whether it's conditional. And you, you, you know, you better meet these conditions if you're going to be acceptable to us. So, so much of this, James, centers on projection, the idea of, of projection. Can you share a little bit about what, what projection is and, and the projections we're all constantly making? Well, sure. Our, uh, our, our psyche is geared to respond to the world, obviously. I need to know if that's a tiger in the bush coming for lunch or not. You know, I need to be responsive to the world. But whatever gets triggered in me can leave me unconsciously. It's not a conscious event and go out onto another or onto an institution. You know, can, people can project something onto a religious organization or a governmental organization or to a, a career even. If I follow this path, it's going to be fulfilling for me and, and, and so forth. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. Just to give a footnote here, I, I said to many nervous parents, it doesn't matter what your child majors in at the college or university, because the statistics tell us that you know, about 80% will be doing something else within 10 or 15 years. Anyhow, it's what it, what matters is they get away from you. They start practicing <laughs> uh, like being like an adult and, and they can learn some things along the way that would be applicable to their journey elsewhere. But it's, it's basically a time of general confusion and some discernment and, but, and a lot of risk. And, and, you know, the most important thing is that they know that they're cared for and that you you bless them on your journey. And, you know, if, if you have that as a given to you, you're, you're going to feel freedom, you're going to feel permission. If not, everything is conditional. Life is conditional. And you're expected to meet the conditions. Well, if you're responding that way, of course, you're always in some way responding to the outer. And and the voice within is squelched in all of that. And And to some degree, that's true of all of us. So there's nothing wrong with romance. It's just that it's it's a, a kind of transitory experience that down the line needs to be replaced by something we call love. And that may or may not happen. You're not particularly in control of that. And, and, and love is caring about the person as they are, as another person who's mm -hmm. at times going to be inexplicable to you. Sometimes it's going to be irritating to you. My, my wife has this wonderful saying that I've quoted many times and everybody laughs, um, which is why I keep repeating it. Um, she says, relationship is having one special person you can annoy for a very long time. <laughs> and and we, we joke about that. And there's a truth to it. But I find that we love each other in our annoyances. And it's something that, um, you know, doesn't quite fit into the romantic paradigm, but it's it does in 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 the field of um, that energy we call love, I think. Mm. It, it, it raises, you know, questions again that, that link back to that discernment thing, uh, I think, which is so central to the whole conversation and the whole process of being a human, which is around this sense of if people listening to this right now are, a feeling, maybe a longing or a desire for a different type of life for this new person who's emerged um, to, to shift their life and move here and do this sort of work instead. What are the questions that, that you would encourage um, are, are helpful questions to ask yourself or, or to work through internally 
to begin to discern, is this just another projection and complex or is this actually that, that summons of life leading me forward, um, you know, past all of the, the gloss of romance and, and ambition and ego into actually uh, the, the life I'm here to live? Well, life is also an experiment and sometimes you have to give yourself to experiments. In other words, people may very well set off in a certain career and decide after 10 years or 15 years, this is not what I want to do with my life's energy. Uh, and then they face an important choice about that. So frankly, time often solves a lot of these problems, brings up other problems, but time often brings us to an accounting. And that accounting is something that, um, you know, are those junctures, those nodules in life where, where one is summoned to make a different kind of choice. So uh, I've suggested several of those questions. What is life asking of me? What is the soul asking of me? Um, and what is, what is any particular choice in service to inside of me? And, and to also say, who am I apart from my roles? And the roles may be good or they may not be, but who am I apart from my roles? And what are the appointments I need to keep with my own soul? Because the irony is, you know, soul keeps summoning, and up, summoning us, but men, most people never show up for the appointment. Mm. And, and that's why sometimes life has to break through and really hammer you in a way that you're not to your knees and you're forced then to sort of examine, but, but who am I? You know, I mean, death of a partner, loss of a job. You know, many people found during the sequestering for the recent pandemic um, that how much of their life was being carried by, let's say, their outer work structure or their outer social structure. And when they couldn't go out and do that, a lot of that energy inverted in them as depression or as anxiety. And so there was a lot of self-medication. And, and some people found a, a different and better relationship to themselves through that process. So that, that was a, a test on a cultural basis or a culture-wide basis of, all right, what happens if your normal treatment plans for existential anxiety are not available to you? What, what, what's going to happen? What are you going to do? Can you bear to sit with yourself? Blaise Pascal in the 17th century said, all of our difficulties stem from not being able to sit in a private chamber with ourselves for very long. The culture invented the gesture simply to keep people uh, distracted. That's the 17th century, you see. Mm -hmm. Think about today, how our whole life, our popular culture is nothing but a grand distraction. What is it we're being distracted from? And at some level, the answer, generic answer to that question is we're being distracted from a conversation with our own souls. Who am I if I stop all the noise out there and simply sit by myself and, and, and let things emerge, let things rise? And again, sounds very simple and very few people do it because yeah. at some level it's frightening to do that. And, yeah. you know, because you, you then, then you're in the mystery, as it were, the mystery of life itself, which we don't know. That's why it's a mystery, right? If we knew it, it wouldn't be a mystery. Then you're in the mystery. And as Jung put it, life is a short pause between two great mysteries. Now, how are you going to spend that pause? Life will present you with obstacles along the way, traumatic obstacles at times. And the question always is, what now are you to do in the face of this situation over which you may have no control? 
But what is your summons here? Maybe you've lost a child, as I have, or or maybe you, you go through a divorce in life, or maybe you, you suffer a physical ailment, or, or whatever the venue of it is, life will, again, bring you the hammer. And then the question is, what am I called to in terms of attitudes and behaviors if I'm, if I'm responding to this out of my own truth rather than simply trying to run from it or anesthetize it in some way or distract myself from it. Mm. Yeah, and, and there's so there's thousands of years of wisdom about, you know, facing the things that scare us, that that's where life is found. And I, I love, I might, as we move towards wrapping up, James, use this quote of yours, which I've, I've got up on the, the, the wall uh, in the office I work at at the moment, um, which says, how scary it might prove to conclude that I am essentially alone in this summons to personal consciousness, that I cannot continue to blame others for what has happened to me, that I'm really out there on that tightrope over the abyss, making choices every day, and that I am truly irrevocably responsible for my life, that I would have to grow up, stand naked before this immense, brutal universe, and step into the largeness of this journey, my journey. And that, that sums so much of, of this conversation up, this, that, that there are all these, these myriad ways that we outsource the journey, avoid the journey, um, pretend the journey isn't there, um, and, and that really that the real meat of life is found in turning and facing the journey. If people are listening saying, that sounds too big for me, I don't know if I've got that in me, I don't know what's going to happen. What what can you, after you know journeying with so many people as they they do turn to to face life and face the soul, what is the promise of a life lived that way? What what will they encounter if they are if they're brave enough to answer the summons? Well, I can certainly appreciate their apprehension. At the same time, um, th- then it's fair to say if I don't address that, I, I didn't show up in this life. You know, my body was here. I played socialized roles some of which are important, as a citizen, partner, parent, etc. But I didn't show up in the, in the way that was real and important for me. Again, whether recognized by the world or not is irrelevant. Something inside is, is what knows what is right for us. Um, and, and that paragraph that you read is uh, right at the core of it. Do you have the courage to take responsibility for your life or you're living in service to what you were told to do. You're either serving it or running from it, but it's still governing your life. And once that becomes truly conscious, is that acceptable to you? And if it is acceptable, all right, that's your life and you'll live with it. But at the end of the day and at the end of the journey, will it? Will, will you, assuming you're conscious on your deathbed, will you be able to say, of course I made mistakes. Of course I wish I would have done this or that in a better way. But by and large, I, I lived what I was meant to do here with my life. I became something of that person that was invested by the gods, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, it's been a wonderful journey. You know, mm-hmm. that short pause between two great mysteries. So, you know, what do we do with that pause? That's the question. Yeah. It's a, a wonderful question, and, and there's very little writing out there, James, that's more helpful as we explore it than yours. People can, uh, can track down James Hollis's books uh, all over the place. They are, they are so well worth the read, uh, and it's been such a great conversation. James, it's a real honor to, to meet you, and, and I'm so grateful for you making time for the podcast today. You're welcome, Dom, and a privilege to be with you, and I hope you enjoy your visit to Washington. <laughs>